0: And good morning everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be on this rotating, very, very turbulent globe tonight. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. You know, you have no idea what it's like living all by yourself in a desert at 6,500 feet, where things break and they don't get fixed for a while, not here. But in terms of infrastructure, that's going to be the the watchword for the new year. Oh, by the way, happy new year, everybody! Since uh, because of infrastructure breakdown last weekend, I mean, I I lost everything: internet, phones. Literally, they could not find what was wrong with the phone for a week, a whole week, and I knew it was not really here because. The little digital time thing on the dial, because these are these are uh, you know portable uh, phones, uh, remotes, uh, would show the correct time, but there was no dial tone, no playing with buttons didn't do anything. Looking at circuits, making sure that anything not hung up was nothing worked, and then this morning, literally around noon, the phone rang. And I leaped out of bed because, of course, when you don't have a phone for a week and you don't hear anything, it's really quiet. And it was Ron. And he said, oh, it works. And I said, yes, it works. And I had no idea because my last contact with the phone company, they were not due out here uh, again trying to come out because of a snowstorm we had until Monday. And there's another snowstorm on the way. So something, and I don't like to use this term magically fixed the phone literally within a couple of hours of a week a full week when it was not working thank goodness the internet did come back and there is Skype and there's email and you know it's very hard to be out of touch <laughs> these days but uh, not so much here in the land of in- enchantment I'm beginning to take take that you know moniker rather more seriously because something interacted and we have phones tonight is uh, January 6th now we're going to get to one of the domestic reasons for why this date is now going to live in history as Franklin Delano Roosevelt said many decades ago another date but in fact it is the Russian Orthodox Christmas tonight and in honor we're going to play one Christmas song. I'm going to do one Christmas song because the show tonight is dedicated to NASA's secret 12 days of their hyperdimensional Christmas. And we have some presents under the tree to unwrap, to reveal, to share with you tonight. So, um, apropos of, well, uh, let me let me reverse this, okay? Let me talk about uh, how you get to new news items and images, because that's a very important part of the Other Side of Midnight. What you want to do is go to the Other Side of and that will take you to our website. Our banner for tonight, the very top, says the President's Artifact: The Twelve Hyperdimensional Days of NASA's Secret Christmas. You know, they, they've been building up to this for quite a while because they've been leaking, dribbling out these amazing nuggets of real data, and yet they don't say anything. You know, it's it's totally on the QT. If you can figure it out, fine. They won't acknowledge. They won't respond. If you don't figure it out, fine, because they won't acknowledge or respond. Uh, but tonight we're going to unveil some really interesting things that i think are going to come to a head in 2024 this is now the magic 2024 georgia and i georgia lambert who was our resident metaphysician she spent decades working with uh, Manley hall uh says that in you know occult literature the um uh 2024 2025 window is when all kinds of things are supposed to happen. I had a guest on from India uh, many, many uh, days ago, weeks ago. Actually, it was probably a couple of years. And he said that the um, corrected uh, Vedic calendar changes you know, to the next cycle from the um, current one that we're in uh, in 2024, 2025. So independent analysis and independent sacred texts are kind of focusing on the next couple of years as a major turning point in the calendar, in human history. And I think that all heck is going to break loose, not the least of which is domestically, which takes us, of course, to our first item. Now, what you want to do is you want to go to that banner Remember the one that says the president's artifacts for Saturday, January 6th of 20. I got to keep remembering now to say it and to write it. You know, you know, the old problem that will take you to my items. Click on Richard under that banner. I'm sorry. uh, Click on the banner itself first. Start with that. That will take you to the guest page under the same banner on the top of the guest page. You will see uh, where it says fast links to items. Click on my name. That will take you down further in the page to where we have video links, news items, images, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, Take a look at my first item. This is a very interesting analysis in Reason Magazine. Let me give you a little perspective. Reason Magazine is probably the farthest right Republican journal that you'll find in American um, political thought and discussion. Many, many years ago, when I was just getting into the uh, Mars investigation, I did a briefing for Reason Magazine. And I'm kind of kicking myself now because uh, there we wanted to do and our approach was very different. They were very much into the capitalist, you know, mainstream perspective of you know, well, let's make some money at this. And I didn't want to make money at this, and so Reason Magazine and I parted company. However, uh, their analysis of the January 6th attack as an insurrection, which, of course, leads into all the other astonishing, unbelievable, unprecedented history that's being compressed into the next 12 months, is going to knock your socks off because, because of the January 6th attack and the uh, documentation of the ex-president's involvement with that insurrection, there is a major legal battle now that reached uh, yesterday to the Supreme Court where the court is going to weigh in on is Donald Trump uh, excommunicated main made non-eligible to run for office again because of the third section of the 14th Amendment. And the Reason magazine analysis, which again is not lefty, it's not woke, it's not all that nonsense stuff, it's a very conservative analysis based on an original reading of the Constitution of the United States. I mean, you can't get more straight arrow uh, than that and uh, their conclusions and their evidentiary steps, one, two, three, whatever, it's very important that we look at all sides of this as we enter the most extraordinary turbulent year, I believe, without doubt, in the history of the United States of America, notwithstanding the fact that it's only second to the Civil War itself. Now, tomorrow night, I have Alfred Weber on, and Alfred Weber has written several books. Uh, We're going to enter into his, you know, um, uh, literary works and scholarship through one doorway, but there are many other doors in that palace he's created in terms of scholarship that we're going to look at, and one of those that the United States, if... It's pushed at the right time in the right direction, and I'm using that in air quotes. Fact fragment into separate regions on the continental United States, you know itself, and um, I'm not sure whether this is a you know a lead pipe sin in Alfred's analysis, or it's a probability, or it's something that we can avert, or it's something that anyway it's going to be part of our discussion. I have not heard serious discussion of fragmentation of the United States for probably 20-some years, since the 80s, longer. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see how Weber is analyzing current history and feeding into his model that fragmentation is one potential result. Did anybody of our generation imagine That we'd be talking very seriously about the united states fragmenting of 10 times worse than the civil war over over what what is our fundamental difference what's the thing that are dividing us as opposed to the things that are bringing us together well tonight we're going to talk about nasa's secret christmas presents because if this panoply of extraordinary evidence that the human race is part of a much larger human family, a much larger galactic family, a much larger potentially hyperdimensional family, from which we in our analysis appear to have been cut off at in the past history of this very complicated solar system. Then that alone, that, that larger frame, it is my wish and my hope and my uh, um, sincerest desire that that will provide us the underlying unifying glue to realize that no matter what our differences are, they are minuscule compared to the radical, extraordinary unknown which we are now in the first few days of this new year directly confronting. And what do I mean by that? Well, next week, a subcommittee of the House of Representatives under Republican leadership led by, you know, congressmen like uh, Tim Burchette, <clears throat> excuse me, and Representative Luna and many, many others are going to have a classified briefing from the Inspector General of the US Department of Defense revealing discussing laying out evidence for the reality of UAP ie UFOs ie ETs did you ever imagine in mainstream American life that you have a US president up on 91 criminal indictments, I mean, what, that you would have the U.S. government briefing Congress in closed session about a phenomenon, a subject, that's supposed to not exist. It's supposed to be fiction, fantasy, Looney Tunes, crazy, you know, the stuff that doesn't even belong on the backs of cereal boxes. And yet, these things and a lot more, I mean, what's NASA up to, are all hitting the fan at the same time. Remember that movie that won the Academy Award? Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Well, that's the reality that the ancient sages, occult sources of wisdom, the Vedas, uh, astrologers, all the foo-foo stuff have all said is going to come to the four in the next year or two as we change from the Kali Yuga back up the scale to the next higher vibrational leopard, uh, uh, you know, uh, frequency of the Vedic calendar now my model for what's driving all this of course is the physics the fact that the processional cycle has real physical effects on planets, the solar system, actions of the sun, actions of other stars. Don't let me get started on Betelgeuse, okay? Uh, And, of course, on consciousness, human and otherwise. So this is kind of like a prelude to tomorrow night where we're going to be gripping, coming to grips directly with the most extraordinary problem of our time now in the next few months which is this insane war between jews and other people in the middle east the palestinians you know the islamic religion the uh, mullahs of iran the hostages in more ways than one the palestinian people themselves the extraordinarily bent warped shattered history of that region of the planet, and why one people, the Jews, apparently have been the target for extraordinary hate and violence, not just for decades, not just for hundreds of years, but from as far back in time, millennia, as we can trace a written record. Why? Well, tomorrow night, Alfred and I are going to discuss an absolutely bizarre, off-the-wall, out-of-the-box completely bonkers idea and I'm gonna bring to the table evidence. Alfred's gonna bring to the table evidence. Again the kind of evidence that only something as big as discovering the real history of humanity against other people, other races, other civilizations and an extraordinary amount of ancient, hidden history, I believe, can surmount. So think of tonight and tomorrow night as kind of part one and part two. Now, go to my second item. Um, This is a picture, uh, a close-up, of uh, Rod Roddenberry, who is my departed friend Gene Roddenberry's only son. Rod Roddenberry, when he was growing up, hated Star Trek because... For obvious reasons, as a kid, as a teenager, as a rebellious teenager, Star Trek kept his dad away from home and hearth and fire and family life and all that to a degree that Rod really, 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 really resented. Well, he's come full circle, or half a circle, 180 degrees. Remember that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger where the mobster says... Anyway, so... um." Rod's article, which is not by him but uh, about him, um, concerns a lunar launch, the Peregrine mission, the unmanned robotic mission, which is going to leave for the moon on Monday and arrive at the moon for a landing on February 23rd of 2024, which is one day before David Copperfield. You know, the magician whose dad was in the military, the U.S. Army Air Corps at Roswell, just by chance, of course, is going to make the moon disappear. Well, if you read item number two, um, on this mission, put there by a very interesting company called Celestis, will be the ashes of all of the major stars of the original star trek series who have departed and that in itself is historic now the landing site for the peregrine mission fortunately for the future of the mission itself given the fact that i am absolutely confident that uh, no one's taken into account of the ancient glass dome that we've discovered covering the moon remember it's not equally dangerous everywhere There are much thinner sections and much denser areas. The poles, the glass is still there, relatively, uh, you know, dense, so it's dangerous. The far side is really dangerous, which, of course, is why the Chinese used a very different technique to land a mission on the far side of the moon as opposed to missions which have been landed on the front, uh, the the Earth side, the the near side of the moon facing the Earth. Because, of course, the moon rotates around the Earth, in the same period that it takes to rotate on its axis, so we only see essentially one side. When they land, which I presume they're going to do quite successfully given the glass is pretty thin, um, they are going to begin a mission which will involve a private company successfully landing for the first time, if it works, on the Earth's only large natural satellite. And they will be taking, as part of their uh, payloads, these little capsules of ashes from the stars, the superstars of a television show spearheaded by Gene, whose journey has brought the Americans, humanitarians, the human race, as Brookings proposed that something like this do from the literal Dark Ages into the 21st century of human consciousness that we are likely not alone. If there's any one simple television show which I think has had more impact on humanity, it probably is Star Trek. So it's very fitting and uh, Rod says some very nice things in that article about what's fitting. What he did not anticipate and what the company which is doing the mission in uh, in concert with nasa did not anticipate what nasa did not anticipate is that the head of the navajo nation has written a formal legal letter to the united states space agency to nasa basically objecting to the peregrine mission because of the ashes of the star trek crew on board he is claiming and uh, i didn't find a great link in time for the show but you can find it by simply googling navajo nation objects to a latest nasa moon mission he is objecting to nasa's mission contaminating the moon with an extraordinary intrusion of ancient remains of earthlings who according to the Navajo are contaminating the pristine sacred lunar sphere of Navajo tradition. Well I have news for the Navajo. There's an awful lot of ancient bodies already on the moon from those who lived there hundreds of thousands and millions of years ago. In fact this is so interesting that I'm gonna kind of make it a mission that in the coming days and weeks, I'm gonna reach out to the head of the Navajo Nation and show him and the council and the uh, tribe that in fact, the moon has been incredibly inhabited and they're already incredibly sacred remains. And it is <clears throat> only appropriate and fitting that our Star Trek uh, generation join them because it's a bridge between an extraordinarily important ancient past and an extraordinarily important ancient future where in gene's vision instead of separate warring tribes which we are tonight in every way possible this act this understanding of the real role of the moon in human history and the role of our ancestors in terms of the moon and human history, not just on Earth, but all across the solar system, can lead us all into a better and newer age, where we are finally celebrating the fact that it's out there. We are all so closely related down here. So without further ado, let me introduce uh, other members of our uh, team tonight. We have uh, members of the Enterprise Mission uh, Analysis and Imaging and Investigation team. Andrew Curry is with us. Andrew, as you well know, is a professional artist. He does artwork for commercials, for films. Um, he does artwork for special individuals like Steve Bassett. Uh, remind me, Andrew, I've got to connect you and Steve because Steve did a very interesting mission for us uh, a couple weeks ago. and. Uh, we need to talk about uh, uh, the 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 next step Uh, we've got robert morningstar with us who is a uh, builds himself as a civilian intelligence analyst lives in new york has a um, very background what you can do is go to the other side of midnight and click on you know fast links to bios which is the line right under fast links to items and you'll see uh, robert there and andrew ron is uh, joining us He's our resident generalist. Um, he is almost at home, so we can join us where he has a good signal, and so we'll bring him on soon. And in the second hour, uh, Ruggiero Calo, who is our um, medical expert and podiatrist and esteemed artist from a very different school of art, he's going to be joining us in the second hour. So let me open the lines here and welcome who is with us at the moment. I believe, Andrew, you're with us. Yes, yes. Robert, hello, are hello. you there? Yes, yes. I am. Excellent. Do we have Ron yet?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, there you are. Okay.
1: Yeah. i am uh, oh. listening. Mm.
0: Super. Okay. So, um, okay. let me, how should I begin? Well, tonight is, of course, the, uh, uh, it, uh, you know, the, the January 6th is the Christmas of the Russian Orthodox Church, which gives me a very interesting backdrop to play my favorite Christmas song, which, of course, is the, uh, you know, do you see what I see, referencing the Christmas star. Because on this day, according to the Orthodox Church, the wise men, three of them, journeying from the East, finally arrived at Bethlehem and worshipped the Christ child in the manger to which that song, that Christmas song by Crosby has been dedicated, and the mystery of what was the star, what did they follow, what led them across thousands of miles from, you know, the Far East to, uh, to, to, to Bethlehem. On our last show, which was on Christmas Eve, um, something very interesting happened. We traced the connections between the physics and the ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia, and we had Maria, Maria Wheatley, very interesting archaeologist and anthropologist from England who has done extraordinary work on the ancient stone circles, connecting dots in terms of the, uh, you know, celebration long before the Romans came to Britain of this ancient end-of-the-year uh, celebration, which I kind of came to the conclusion that they're all... Not separate; they're all related. In other words, beneath our superficial differences, there is this commonality, which is the physics. Well, after we'd finished the show, um, I got an email from one of our uh, very faithful listeners, uh, Stephen, from Massachusetts, and he had done a little calculation, where he looked up the latitude, and you can do, you know, now to like eight, nine significant figures latitude and longitudes because of the satellite mapping of of the entire planet. And he found that the latitude of Stonehenge and the latitude of Bethlehem, when you separate them, when you, you know, subtract one from the other, they are separated by 19.47 degrees. And that, of course, is the key hyperdimensional enclosed tetrahedral angle of the physics in rotating planets, in rotating stars, um, in all rotating systems. And the idea that that could be to four significant figures um, accidental is, of course, just just mind-boggling. So that became an amazing icing on the cake and leads the way tonight to our celebration of the Russian Orthodox Christmas, which, of course, called the wise men, the magi, the the wisdom keepers of the Far East, the magicians. Remember Arthur, Arthur's Clark, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Magic, magi, holders of ancient wisdom, ultimately tracing itself back to, as we discussed you know, a few days ago, this hyperdimensional reality that we are all experiencing. And most, most of humanity has no idea what's marking time and marking events and marking the calendar, marking these cycles. So with that as, as a prologue, let me go to my first item. Take a look at um, uh, item number three. There is currently a new NASA mission, unmanned robotic mission, which is called Lucy, after the famous uh, uh, Beatles song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which apparently, when archaeologists in Africa found one of the oldest pre-hominid skeletons um, somewhere in the deserts of, of, I believe it was Ethiopia. the Beatles songs the rage and they were playing Lucy in the sky with diamonds in the tent and so Johnson the archaeologist to or anthropologist who found this skeleton decided to name the skeleton Lucy as a progenitor a pre-hominid progenitor of humanity well NASA in layers of meaning that go beyond the simple origins of the uh, Uh, hominid, -hominid, pre-hominid, call this new mission to the outer solar system, Lucy, because they are imbuing it with the ability from its instrumentation and its flight profile and its uh, flight plan to uncover the origins of the solar system and perhaps, perchance, life within it. Now, I think that they know a lot more and they know that the destination of Lucy which is the so-called Trojan asteroids which are a group of asteroids you know small uh, rock-like objects that conventional astronomy says orbit the Sun as parts of planets that never formed because of the Jovian gravitational disruption back in the four and a half billion year old foundations of the solar system anyway um. Be that as it may let me continue this on the other side because nobody warned me that we're literally at the bottom of the hour so without further ado let us kind of dedicate tonight to the wise men so that they in fact can bless our journey as we venture back in time to the origins of human beings the origins of uh, people who um, shall we say, came before. We shall return. what I Said
2: the night wind to the little land. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little land. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? A star, a star, dancing in the night With a tail as big as a kite With a tail as big as a kite Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy Do you hear what I hear? The Sky Shepherd B you hear what I hear? Do you hear what I hear a song? A song oh, i love the tree with a voice as big as the sea with a voice as big as the sea.
3: The other side of Midnight.com and to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes.
2: What I know, what I know, know what I know. In your palace, warm, mighty king. Do you know what I know, what I know, know what I know? A child, a child shivers in the cold. Let us bring him silver and gold. Let us bring him silver and gold. Send the king to the people everywhere. Listen to what I say. say. Pray for peace, people everywhere. Listen to what what I say. The child, the child.
0: Welcome back, everyone, on this late Christmas 12-day celebration of the night that the wise men reached Jerusalem, actually Bethlehem, which is just outside. So um, let me bring my panel back in. I I, I want you guys, as we we move through this step-by-step, I want you to kind of chime in and, and give me your thoughts, items three and four are this little asteroid, which is just a few miles in diameter, that by happenstance happens to be on the way, on the trajectory where the Lucy unmanned mission is headed toward the outer reaches of the solar system, the orbit of Jupiter, 60 degrees ahead, 60 degrees behind, will not get there for another several years. But it passes this little asteroid on the way, and they photographed, well, not too well, And then return those images to earth and obviously if you take a look uh, that's not an asteroid that's not a rock that's a ancient eroded spacecraft in fact it's two the first image the one up top number three that was taken as they were approaching number four is taken as they flew by from a greater distance and what appears to be one object kind of attached to the bottom of the uh, larger uh... Um, object turned out to be two in tandem orbiting the larger object Um and they're all incredibly geometric in fact if you zoom in just click on the image it gets much bigger Clume in, zoom in on the enlargements of the two little moonlets those are not like moons i have ever ever seen because you can see girders and spars and reinforcements and framing and all kinds of incredibly non-rock-like geometric stuff which in no way resembles an asteroid. Who wants to go first?
1: Well, that's not much of a launch point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think they are... I personally, I think that all of the um, targets in the terms of asteroids that they go after to take a closer look at are uh, artificial.
0: Oh no, that's really interesting because you and I have never really talked about this, and I came years ago to the same conclusion. Out of the uh, out of the tens and hundreds of thousands of tabulated asteroids, how come every time we get a mission to an asteroid and we get photographs? We find evidence that these are not just pieces of rock. They're in fact ancient, ancient, incredibly eroded spaceships or space habitats or something, which means Ron, which means what? Yes. What what does this imply? Uh, well, this implies that
1: they more than implies that they have some idea of what they're looking for in the first place.
0: Yes, they have a list. Yeah. So the next question is how could they have a list? Where would such a list have come from? Uh, I'd
1: give it... Uh, okay, I'll be kind on that. I think astronomers notice any anomalous behavior in anything that they're looking at, especially something nearby that they might be able to name after themselves or their project or something. And uh, as, a, as a result of that that gives them the evidence they need. I don't think it's that hard to detect the difference. Oh, no, no,
0: no, 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 no. Wrong, 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 wrong. Okay. In classical telescopes, and by classical I mean everything up to and including Hubble, most of these objects, except for Ceres and Pallas and Vesta, the three largest asteroids. Ceres is about the size of Connecticut, 600 miles. They're just points of light in the telescope. They're twinks. And their motions are not anomalous because they're obviously interacting in a solar system where there's all kinds of other nudging gravitational influences from Jupiter and interplanets and out, all, all that. So there's no way you can tell from a twink—that's <clears throat> a combination of twinkling point of light—what it's made of, what its history is, what it why it's unique, whatever. So Under normal circumstances, with the exception of some very confusing spectra, which really are not definitive, you know, all these things basically have looked alike. There are classes, you know, there's rocky ones, there's more metallic ones, there's ones that have a little hint of maybe ice. But other than these gross material, um, you know, compositions, there's been nothing to differentiate one twink from another twink except every one of the objects we have visited turns out when you look at uh certainly our analysis they're ancient eroded spacecraft that brings me to number 5 this is a compilation i did oh, over several you know months a few months ago of the relatively recent uh crop of asteroids that we have either flown past, when I say we, the European Space Agency and or NASA, the Japanese or NASA, and NASA. And Steins was the one visited in a flyby by the Europeans on their way to, I believe, uh, a comet, 67P, uh, the the, uh, the Dawn spacecraft. And um, uh, Ryugu was one that was visited by the japanese a few years ago and they actually uh, sampled it and that material has has come home and then Bennu (coughs) is a smaller version uh, that was sampled by the nasa mission osiris-rex and a few months ago its stockpile of samples from Bennu were delivered in a canister in the desert of utah whisked away to houston and for some reason after months, we're now into January, right? It landed in, in September. Uh, they haven't been able to get into the canister, and we'll get into the details of that later. The thing that I want... So they say. Well, that, you know, let's, let's assume that's what, you know, it's a cover story, and we'll get into why okay. momentarily. When you look at the shape of these objects, does does anybody notice they're all very, very similar, if not identical, They're all very eroded. They're all ancient octahedrons. And the most octahedral, meaning the one with the flat sides and the square corners, is Bennu. Ryugu is much more eroded, meaning in this model it's probably much more ancient. But there appears to be, like you have standard Chevys, you have standard ancient spacecraft. They're just different sizes. But their geometry apparently prefers the octahedral shape. And I have a very non-subtle feeling that that's related to their space drives, what actually moves them, which is not rockets when they were new, but some kind of field propulsion system, which literally hooks into hyperspace and moves them effortlessly around the sun. Or beyond the sun or whatever and after they were parked and they degraded because of erosion that fundamental classic geometric one of the platonic solid shapes is all that remains of an echo that these are not natural rocks and yet unerringly unerringly nasa and the europeans and the japanese have all picked ancient spacecraft to fly by, quote, randomly. What's wrong with this picture?
1: Well, I don't think anything's wrong with it, but it doesn't, uh, you know, I don't think people, I don't think any of us, I'll just say people, that sounds meaning, uh, are um, dogs might hear too. Uh, they, um, they don't, re- they represent uh, something left over from the ancient wars in the way that I look at a model here, and they just left them to drift. And I have not come up with a better... Well, wait, 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 uh, wait, wait, wait. wait. Let,
0: let me say that I agree with you in terms of the main belt asteroids and the interlopers, the so-called Apollo uh, and other asteroids that sail across the orbits of the Earth. I don't think the Jovian uh, asteroids, the so-called 60-degree uh, ahead and 60-degree behind uh, asteroids that we're going to visit. I don't think they were randomly just left. I think they were parked. Because if you want something to be where you can find... Remember that great line from, I think it was Star Trek IV, when they land in in the park in San Francisco, and Kirk says, you know, when they leave the ship, remember where we parked? If you want to leave an incredible treasure trove of information, libraries, anyone, technology history, genesis, biology, longevity, immortality, interdimensional capability. If you want to leave it where your dim, distant uh, descendants are going to be able to go and find it, you want to park it in a solar system filled with whizzing objects at a place where the gravity field will basically keep it in the Trojan points six degrees ahead and six degrees behind And finally, now that NASA has mature technology to be able to send an unmanned spacecraft to go to those distances, they've chosen a spacecraft which, A, already just kind of, by chance, flew by another interesting object, is going to get to the Trojans, is going to mingle with these objects, and it's named... Solemnly and symbolically, for Lucy, a progenitor, in a mainstream model, for all of humanity. Do you see a pattern well, here? I,
1: yeah, I don't. That doesn't uh, that doesn't invalidate any uh, anything else. Of course, you're going to park stuff if you can, if you can. If it's just a relic, the you know it may not be scooped up. I mean, if there was a huge war that destroyed pretty much a civilization, then maybe there weren't a lot of people left that felt like going out and picking up the pieces because they weren't going to be able to go back there anyway. But yeah, no, that's, that's all perfectly uh, coherent, you know, if you put it all together. The thing is the way they look, and that gets, into a, that gets into a whole other category of discussion. But the underneath those, they're ships, or inside all that rubble, if you will. And I think they did that almost as camouflage, uh, maybe exactly as camouflage. But in terms of clues, you said that, you know, they're, maybe they need a map or they had a map.
0: Well, ah. maybe. But well, wait, 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 wait. This is really important because, you know, the, the, well, the, the, the mainstream pretends we're the first. There's never mm-hmm. been another advanced civilization capable of space flight, capable of anti-gravity, capable of any extraordinary technological or hyperdimensional or consciousness functions, we're the first. If we're not the first, and part of each civilization leaves archives for its successors, I look at the earth history, you know, like Sumer, uh, et cetera, then the idea that if you have a huge solar system wide, extraordinary godlike technology and consciousness and knowledge base which is destroyed in some cataclysmic war and you want your you know descendants to somehow put it back together figure out what happened so it doesn't happen again you know the lessons of history that kinda thing you would make Mm -hmm. some effort to park something in space where things don't deteriorate except on a very very long time scale of millions of years so your descendants could have a means of picking up the pieces and you would leave, I would hope, on Earth where the last refugees would have to go, because the only place in the solar system where you can live without technology is here at the moment. Um, And and what, what this implies strongly is that NASA somehow has access or found access or was bequeathed access Or was formed because of its access to that ancient archive of maps and celestial logbooks and and ephemerids so they could, when Mm -hmm. the time was right when they had the right technology they could go and find their past all of our past and that's exactly what I think is going on tonight and they've been caught in a very interesting double bind Because one of these objects they visited and actually brought back material from, and it's sitting in a vault in Houston tonight that they claim they can't open, literally is filled with artifacts, and we can prove that toward the end of the show, and there will be another part of the story. So I think they had inside information of the best sort, which is they are heirs to an ancient treasure. Of Historical data see, I agree with
1: all of that, except ah. the uh, motivational angle that's a, i I think that uh, it's a little presumptuous of us to assume that somebody wanted to leave us a map or an archive.
0: why
1: well, I can think of a number of scenario scenarios where such a uh, such an indicator such a um, map as it were. Uh, might have turned up, Uh, it could have turned up from any um, craft that happened to crash and get recovered or discovered, even a little one, because in their, uh, what do they call them on Star Trek and elsewhere, the star charts, in their star charts, in their logbooks, as you mentioned, uh, this kind of stuff would be noted, and somebody would go, you know, there are rumor, There have been rumors about that, because NASA studies
0: this stuff. Yeah, but wait, 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 wait. My uh, model is, and I want everybody else to join in, so let's make this our last point until we get to the next interesting milestone. NASA was mm-hmm. formed to do this. It's not an accident that Eisenhower created a, quote, civilian agency, and it's been hiding everything really cool for the last 50 years. Their hidden right. mission, quoting Keith Laney, their secret hidden mission was to go and retrieve this history of real humanity. And since on Earth, it's, it's either been, you know, pillaged or destroyed many times over, given the turbulent human history of Earth, wars and all that, or the erosive history of Earth, the weather, geology, and all that, The only really immortal place you can find something that's millions of years old in in pretty good condition is going to be somewhere in space. So I think NASA was created as the archive secret agency of the U.S. government to go and find our real history and then use it for themselves, not necessarily for the human species as a whole. So you're comparing
1: NASA to Anna
0: Basically, well, because remember, that was the
1: secret society. The Nazis. I know you know that. And 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 the Nazis
0: came over and infiltrated NASA. Von Braun et al. And their philosophy became the NASA philosophy, except they didn't, uh, you know, publicly crucify Jews. But in terms of secret knowledge and you know an inside story and an outside story, uh, there's not much difference. You know, Hitler sent the Ananurbi to the Tibetan Plateau to steal all the sacred artifacts from the Tibetan monks. Well, we Mm -hmm. now know tonight there's an ancient Stonehenge on the moon, where NASA landed two sets of missions, an unmanned mission, Surveyor 3, and a manned mission, Apollo 12, twice within walking distance, you know, literally tens of feet of this ancient archive that's sitting in one of the photographs looking like an ancient sarcophagus. And there isn't one record in the NASA archive about Apollo that says that the two astronauts, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean, went anywhere near what's obviously an artificial object sitting on the moon or any astronaut worthy of assault would have gone, holy gallopers, Batman, what the heck is that doing here? you know here's
1: something this is anomalous to this but it fits as well what you just said that does seem to be the evidence and yet uh i went through a couple weeks ago the archive very poorly attended uh that ken johnson uh set up on the internet uh you've got one of the pictures from it there but i had to clean it up because they're all faded and everything but he took all these pictures from the, uh, uh, that were leftovers from the Apollo program, and he was one of the people that was supposed to get rid of all the junk. And instead, he took some. You know, He took a, whole, took a box or two of them to preserve them, because they were going to Well, back, back in
0: the day, NASA had made many, many duplicates of the Apollo imagery. And Ken mm-hmm. was curator for the Lunar Receiving Laboratory Science, scientists of that archive, and his superior told him one day, get rid of all those extra copies and just, you know, keep one. So instead well, of taking them to the dumpster, he took one set to his alma mater his university in Oklahoma. And he kept one set, partial set, for himself. And then decades later, when we finally met, he loaned me some of the images. And that's how I figured out that Mitchell was unveiling the television camera under this incredibly shattered glass dome stretching overhead, which you can clearly, crystal clear, see in his preserved copies, which have been nowhere near NASA in over 30 years, and you can barely discern on the umpteen generations of analog copies that NASA has made of those images since and given out to the public. So he didn't purloin. He was officially told to destroy, and all he did was put his destruction on a much longer time frame. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, no, uh, that's, I'm glad he wasn't even the only one. But the point is, I was looking on the web, of course, for uh, just a couple weeks ago for such things. I found his archive. Like I said, it's a bit stale, <laughs> but it's, you know, the pictures are old anyway. Uh, and there is a picture there that you just get a glimpse of. It's not one of the uh, ones at indexed, and it shows a ast- couple of, an astronaut. I think there's just one in view. And they're clearly standing next to some standing stones, period. And you just get a it's one of the ones that goes by in a little cascade. And one part of them going, I'll be damned. So maybe they did go over and look at it. And the remember, they had to stomp pretty hard to get those tracks uh, that are so famous to show in the dust. And maybe they just carefully sort of sidled over. Somebody did. Because there's, there's definitely a picture of an astronaut standing next to standing stones. And I don't think that any fake recreation or uh, uh, trial run or anything like that would have included a scene like that. NASA would never do that. So it's 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 you know it's as real as all the other pictures that Ken Johnson left us. Um,
0: I have documented proof, because I was there in the house of the doctor that was part of their quarantine. Remember, the astronauts up until the very end missions, all were quarantined for 21 days. And we all uh-huh. wondered, you know, well that was supposed to be biological prevention and we're basically uh, less than a minute from the bottom of the hour here, uh, top of the hour. <clears throat> all, everybody wondered why, given the sterility of the moon's surface, why would you quarantine astronauts on the incredibly small chance they might bring back a microbe? Well, there were other things that were done In those 21 days of isolation, not the least of which was brainwashing, which opens Mm. up a whole new can of worms, which is why none of them could remember what it felt like. And Pete Conrad, the head of the Apollo 12 mission, complained for years that he couldn't remember, like Ed Mitchell, what it felt like to walk on the moon. They could remember their flight plan, their itinerary, what they did, etc., but they, but they literally could not, you know, remember what in fact, uh, uh, you know, it felt like to be where no one had gone before. Well, maybe it's because something had altered their minds. Okay, we're at the um, uh, top of the hour. I've got to get my clock straight here. So let us continue this conversation on the other side uh, when we return. You're tuned to The Other Side at Midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, we shall return. Over and out.